Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into Christopher West's work, Fill These Hearts, which, as many of you know, is a series of reflections on theology of the body. Uh, What is theology of the body? We use that phrase so much. Well, theology of the body is that discipline where we seek to better understand the ways in which we are created in the image and likeness of God in light of being male and female, huh? How God stamped his very life in the language of our body. So we seek to better understand that so as to, yes, be able to share it. And I know these are the days where we really are focusing in on how can we better share theology of the body to respond to the critic out there who is maybe for gay marriage or, or for same-sex attraction, all these things. Well, okay, that's fine, and this is what we are about, and I speak to this a great deal, but I want to make a point because I think it's being lost uh, today. Theology of the body is certainly intended to be shared, but first lived It must first be embraced. It must first be owned. Well, how do you do that? Well, you study it, you pray with it, and you begin to integrate uh, the principles that it's about, specifically the virtues, huh? I'm thinking, of course, of the virtue of purity. I mean, if we are going to be stewards of theology of the body, we must first let the purity of Christ invade our life, frequenting the sacramental life, frequenting prayer, and allow the life of Jesus Christ to abide in our very minds and hearts. So important. I know over the past week, week and a half, I have received so many questions. Joe, what do we say? Joe, what do we do? And yeah, there's things to say, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but be rest assured, before we do that, we better be first thinking about the importance of owning it. And I'm just not talking about owning it to share it. I'm talking about owning it to live it out, to be men and women who have a deeper understanding of what it means to live responsibly with a gift that God has given to us, that gift of purity, most especially in the Eucharist. So that being said, in light of my conversations that I have had this past week, I want to re-engage a point that I've made in the past, um, notably on Uh, the night that we've been talking about Pope Francis. We've been talking about this personal accompaniment. Now, I want Pope Francis to speak to us here for a little bit. I'm going to read from Pope Francis. This comes directly from Joy of the Gospel. Listen to what he has to say. I think this is quintessential, my dear friends, for you and I, if we are going to really advance the conversation. And it's not so much the subject matter yet as much as it is highlighting the disposition that is necessary to have the conversation itself. He says this, Some people think they are free if they can avoid God. 
They fail to see that they remain existentially orphaned, helpless, homeless. They cease being pilgrims and become drifters, flitting around themselves and never getting anywhere. To accompany them would be counterproductive if it became a sort of therapy supporting their self-absorption and cease to be a pilgrimage with Christ to the Father. So right there, what he's encouraging us to do is to make sure that when we are journeying with someone, we are not encouraging, in effect, sin. We are not encouraging a journey without God, which means we must encourage a journey towards truth, the truth of Jesus Christ and the revelation of God. So in those words, Pope Francis wants us to be thinking about the importance of us journeying with our brothers and sisters in Christ and doing so towards truth, the truth of the matter. Well, how do you do that? Well, he has the answer, and I think this is great. Today, more than ever, we need men and women who need to practice the art of listening, which is more than simply hearing. Listening in communication is an openness of heart which makes possible that closeness without which genuine spiritual encounter cannot occur. Listening helps us to find the right gesture and word which shows that we are more than simply bystanders. Only through such respectful and compassionate listening can we enter on the paths of true growth and awaken a yearning for the Christian ideal, the desire to respond more fully to God's love and to bring to fruition what he has sown in our lives. Okay, so the art of listening is what he is talking about there, which means that we pay close attention to what, in fact, the person we are speaking to or the person we are listening to is actually saying. What does that mean? That means we don't go into a conversation, my dear friends, with all guns firing, thinking, well, I know what they need to hear. I've got all of my sound bites ready, and this is what they need to hear. No. Listen to them and ask questions. Make sure they are taking ownership of what they are saying, but do so in light of what they are saying. Pope Francis goes on. One who accompanies others has to realize that each person's situation before God and their life and grace are mysteries which no one can fully know from without. So, my dear friends, we listen because otherwise we couldn't possibly know what this person or that person is going through. Each and every person has an unrepeatable past, an unrepeatable set of experiences, an unrepeatable story to tell, and that's what we need to listen to. Pope Francis goes on, the gospel tells us to correct others and to help them to grow on the basis of a recognition of the objective evil of their actions. Matthew 18, 15, there it is. When... Pope Francis said, do not judge. He was speaking to the subject of what we do not know, what is unseen, unheard, unknown. Here he makes it clear. We must bring people to a recognition of objective evil, but without making judgments about their responsibility and culpability. That is what he was talking about on the airplane. Pope Francis continues, someone good at such accompaniment does not give in to frustrations or fears. He or she invites others to let themselves be healed, 
to take up their mat, embrace the cross, leave all behind, and go forth ever anew to proclaim the gospel. Our personal experience of being accompanied and assisted, and of openness to those who accompany us, will teach us to be patient and compassionate with others, and to find the right way to gain their trust, their openness, and their readiness to grow. Trust, my friends. Trust is so important to the dynamic of any conversation. And I'll close with these words because they are so important. Genuine spiritual accompaniment always begins and flourishes in the context of service to the mission of evangelization. So what is he saying there? That every friendship must have Jesus Christ at the center. That with Jesus Christ at the center, he can evangelize our hearts. In this way, certainly, we can mutually help one another. My friends, it is so easy to just assume that we know what people want to hear, that we do not enter into this art of listening. These are the days where we need to be pulling back in prayer so as to draw from the wisdom of God and at the same time to assess each and every encounter that we have. Mindful, my dear friends, of the words that come to us from Pope Francis. We would be um, well off if we did that. And as I've spoken to it in the past, when people ask us questions about why we believe what we believe, specifically as it relates to traditional marriage and male and female and, and all the rest, it's always good to answer a question with the question so that the person who's asking the first question can actually take ownership of what they are saying. In the last week and a half, I have found myself in a number of conversations, and I won't say debates because they really weren't, but conversations and dialogues where I was asking a lot more questions than I was giving answers to questions, and I I just continue to find it helpful because in the end, it does get the conversation going in the right direction. Um, So, very important. Now, we do turn our attention to theology of the body and fill these hearts, and we do so because we do need to spend some time with the principles themselves, and this is what we've been about from one week to the next over the past year. And so by principles, it's always to remember that these are foundational disciplines. These are foundational tools to better understand theology of the body. In fact, the word principle from the Latin means origin or foundational, right? So foundational tools. And I use the word tool intentionally here because they help us to better construct properly the conversations we have, huh? This is so important. This is so important. I, I know we want that soundbite response, and, and they are good. But when we have the tools at our disposal, then we can just pull from that toolbox as we need to, and the conversation will again evolve as it needs to. So this work, Fill These Hearts, is all about, my dear friends, coming to better understand what these principles are all about, how we might better use these tools to live the faith and share the faith, and uh, ultimately that we might find ourselves at peace, at peace with God and at peace with one another. Okay, all that being said, let us engage, fill these hearts, and we'll go ahead and pick up where we left off. I I think we left off on page 38. If you have your work out there, fill these hearts. 
Christopher West was quoting Teresa of Avila, and yeah, that is where I left off. So I'll go ahead and uh, read Teresa of Avila again. And remember, we're in this chapter that has us focusing in on the banquet, this call we have to enter into uh, this bridal union with God, huh? that we have this ache, uh, we have this desire, and this is something that has been implanted by God. And so St. Teresa of Avila says, in light of this call we have to have the ache and desire fulfilled, to go to the wine cellar. (laughs) I love this. She says, the king seems to refuse nothing to the bride. Well then, let her drink as much as she desires and get drunk on all these wines in the cellar of God. Let her enjoy these joys, wonder at these great things, and not fear to lose her life through drinking much more than her weak nature enables her to do. Let her die at last in this paradise of delights, blessed death that makes one live in such a way. I absolutely love that quote. You know, despite all the widespread impressions to the contrary, we must impress this truth that St. Teresa of Avila speaks to upon our very souls and allow it to settle into our very bones, right where we find our deepest longing, our deepest yearning. Christianity, and Christopher West makes this point a lot, is the religion of desire, is the religion of ache, is the religion of yearning, because It is the religion that redeems Eros, huh? And its saints are the ones who have had the courage to feel, we could say, the abyss of longing in their souls and in their bodies, and to open that longing in the groaning of prayer to the one God alone who can heal the wound of love. In other words, the saints have learned how to open all their desires for love and union to the love and union that alone can satisfy. This is what we call mystical marriage with God. We could put it another way. (laughs) The saints, essentially, have learned to open eros, their yearning for love, to eros, capital E, God's passionate love for them. You know, we use the phrase wound of love, and and I talked about it last week. What is that talking about? Well, that is the ache. That is the yearning. huh? And I think we can all grab hold of this, no matter what age you are. Because when we have first fallen for someone, what happens? There is an ache. It's a wound. When we first fall in love, there is an emptiness, All we want to do is to fill that emptiness by serving, by being with the one who is wounding us because of our love for them. You see, take everything that you feel for your beloved, for your boyfriend, girlfriend, your significant other. Take everything that you feel and make note that mystical marriage with God is about that, that longing, that yearning, that ache that we want to be with that significant other, our beloved, our spouse, our boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it may be, God desires that from us. The deeper we go in our life of prayer, 
the more time we spend with God, the more this ache, this wound of love, this yearning is awakened. And when it is awakened, suddenly there's nothing that gets in our way. I mean, for those of you out there who have either fallen in love or or, or in love, you know what I'm talking about. All you care about is spending time with that person. This point can never be reinforced enough. There isn't anything that can get in your way. And when it comes to our relationship with God, this is what the saints teach us. This is what mystical marriage is about. There isn't anything that gets in our way. We have that singular focus on God, that singular desire for God. A desire, my friends, that God himself has implanted unto our very souls. So, we speak of eros. Again, eros is that erotic human love. But is eros really the right word to use here? We must labor, it's true, to free this word from all the lustful distortions in order to get its proper picture. And as we do, we begin to see the true nobility and sacred nature of Eros more clearly. Recall what we've talked about in the past as it relates to uh, Benedict XVI, where he said that Eros at its deepest level, is the desire within us that seeks God. In turn, God's love may certainly be called eros, because as Benedict XVI tells us, it is also totally agape. What is agape? Again, agape is that divine, sacrificial, selfless love. It refers to other-centered, sacrificial giving without ulterior motives, And since it is considered the more spiritual love, it is often set in sharp distinction to eros. But again, this is a mistake. You know, Christopher West quotes my favorite Italian theologian actually on this point, Father uh, Raniero Cantalamesa. He is the official preacher to the papal household in Rome. I've talked about this quite a bit. Cantalamesa says, and I love this, love suffers from ill-fated separation, not only in the mentality of the secularized world, but also in that of the opposite side among believers, simplifying the situation to the greatest extent. We can articulate thus, in the world we find eros without agape. Among believers, we often find agape without eros. The former is a body without a soul, and is well understood, propagated as it is in a hammering away by the secular media. The latter, Cantona Mesa continues, is agape without eros, a soul without a body. It's a cold love in which the component linked to affectivity and the heart is systematically denied or repressed. Either way, my dear friends, by separating eros and agape, We distort the truth of love and the very rupture of our own humanity. The human being is not an angel, right? That is a pure spirit. He is a soul and body substantially united. Everything man does, including loving, must reflect this great truth. You know, I'm thinking of Bruce Jenner. Uh, For some of us, we know him as Caitlyn Jenner. I pray for him, uh, because when I heard him speak, 
on one particular interview. He talked about how he realized he was a woman um, on the inside. And I could not help but think of the subject matter we are talking about now, because what he was speaking to was a soul imprisoned in his body. And that's not how God made us, my dear friends. And I am not accusing Bruce Jenner of anything as much as um, I am calling out to all listeners to pray for this man, to pray for this man sincerely, that uh, God would unlock him from the chains that he feels bound to. Recall again the importance of how we think about the unity of body and soul in light of the sacramentality of our body, a point we probably hit once a month here. And it's always good to hit the refresh button here. When we hear that phrase, sacramentality of the body, what are we intending to mean? That our bodies are sacraments, signs. They communicate a language of an inward reality. What do I mean? Well, if I am happy, how do you know that from the outside? Well, I'm going to smile and I'm going to laugh. If I am sad, how are you going to know that from the outside? I'm going to frown or I'm going to cry. If I'm embarrassed, how are you going to know that from the outside? I'm going to blush. When I'm sad, happy, and embarrassed, you will know because there is a sacramentality to the body. There's an outward sign to an inward reality. Huh? So it's important as we reflect into the unity of eros and agape, eros, that uh, human erotic love, and agape, that divine sacrificial love, to note that there is a unity. Eros and agape belong together. Huh? And we can better understand that in light of the unity of body and soul, most notably with the sacramentality of our body. Okay, venturing on here in this book, Christopher West says, In Christ, God himself took on a body to reveal his spiritual love. Where but in the flesh, huh? So, my dear friends, Christ loves us with the love of a perfect bridegroom, a sacrificial and other-centered outpouring of passion and fire. This is why God's love may certainly be called eros, yet totally agape, as Benedict XVI notes. If Christianity is the religion of wild passion and desire, this is first and foremost because Christ himself is full of wild passion and desire for us, huh? From all eternity, Christ has received the blazing love of the Father. And it is precisely that blazing love that compelled him to take on flesh in order to, what does Luke 12, 49 say? Set the world ablaze. The popular father, Robert Barron, calls his apostolate word on fire. And why does he do that? To set the world ablaze with the word of God. If we feel an unquenchable thirst for God, it's only because he first felt an unquenchable thirst for us. What does the first epistle of John tell us in chapter 4, verse 10? This is love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. So before he offers to quench the thirst of the woman at the well, what does he say? Give me a drink. And in his ultimate outpouring of love from the cross, what does he cry? I thirst. Brothers and sisters, our desire for God, 
must match God's desire for us. And you say to yourself, well, gosh, Joe, that's kind of asking a lot. <laughs> you know? But what does Christ say? Be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. Huh? Christianity, my dear friends, will always raise the bar high. Why? Because there's no ceiling to the infinite love of God. And so we keep reaching for the stars. Remember what the word desire means, to long for, to wish for, to hope for, yes, but in the original sense, to look for the stars, to await what the stars might bring. We must reach for the stars, my dear friends, and we will when we desire God. We must allow ourselves to be, as Bennett the Sixteenth reminds us, overtaken by God's wild, passionate, and crazy love for us in a way, but so much more, that we allow that love we have for our significant other to overtake us. Because their love, while it might be great, is imperfect. God's love is perfect. He wishes to lavish us with this love. If we only knew, my dear friends, how much Jesus thirsts for us, how compelled he is by his wild, divine eros to pour himself out for us, to become one with us, what did he do? He offered his very life for us, his body and blood, food and drink, that indeed in our thirsting we might drink his very life. Oh, how he longs for us to be satisfied in the banquet, the wedding feast, which is what? But an ecstasy of love and union only dimly foreshadowed in the ecstasy of love and union that spouses know here on earth. Yes, we are created for ecstasy, and boy, Christopher West hammers this point home, that indeed this is the good news of the gospel. Christopher West quotes one John Eldridge on this point, and I really like this quote. He says, that is John Eldridge, Christianity refuses to budge from the fact that man was made for pleasure, that his beginning and his end is a paradise, and that the goal of living is to find life. Jesus knows the dilemma of desire, and he speaks to it in nearly everything he says. He knows that ecstasy is not an option. We are made for bliss, and we must have it one way or another. <laughs> I love that. The great sinners and the great saints, as John Paul II would say, are made of the very same stuff. A mad, burning, aching, wild desire for what ecstasy? What's the difference? Some of you are saying out there, well, come on, Joe, what's the distinction? Well, the great sinners head for what we've been talking about as it relates to fast food. They indulge themselves without any sense of what agape is all about. Well, the sinners live in that ecstatic union in light of agape. Christopher West notes here, and, and I couldn't agree with this more, that this helps explain why great sinners are often the ones who become great saints. You've heard me say before that when we pray for saints of today's age, these are often men and women who might not even be Christian right now, right? <laughs> but are those souls out there who are living wildly in their sinfulness without agape. We just need to show them what agape is all about. We show them what agape is all about, what, the, what divine sacrificial love is all about, and suddenly... Eros has a sense of direction, the one person of Jesus Christ, and now they're saints. And of course, the greatest example of this is one St. Augustine. I mean, ardent desires can be an occasion of sin. It's true. 
Diving headlong into pursuing our desires without wise guidance and proper discernment will for sure stir up a hornet's nest, as Christopher West puts it, and get us in trouble, especially if we have grown accustomed to indulging our desires in the fast food, if you will. But does that mean the solution is to ignore, repress, or otherwise annihilate our desires? No, that would be suicide to the soul. And John Paul II and and every saint and every mystic would echo that. Eventually, we must learn how to open our desires up and direct them towards the mystical ecstasy for which they were created. St. Bonaventure says, For no one is in any way disposed for mystical ecstasy unless he is a man of desire. That's St. Bonaventure. I'll say that again and. I'm looking up at the clock. We're out of time. I'll close with that. For no one is in any way disposed for mystical ecstasy unless he is a man of desire. Let us close in a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving for this gift of desire you've given to us that we might share in your very ecstasy, an ecstasy that we long for. Give us the grace to share, in as St. Teresa of Avila put it, your wine cellar. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth. Heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.